This is The Deal with Nisim Black. Yo, 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 everybody, what's going on? This is Nisim Black, a.k.a. God's Man, a.k.a. the Black Abraham Lincoln, a.k.a. Hitler's Worst Nightmare. I was born in Seattle to hip-hop parents, got in trouble as a kid, but I was able to make a major life turnaround. I was a Muslim in my younger years. I became a Christian in my teens, only to discover that my soul was Jewish all along. So I took my wife and my kids, and we packed up and we moved to Israel where we are today. What I want to do on this podcast is... I want to be able to express my inner thoughts, my inner being, my inner will, and also be able to interview other people that may or may not have the same perspective as me. And I want to be able to go and dig deep into social issues, um, issues about racism, issues about anti-Semitism, since I bear both those hats. I want to be able to go deeper, and I want to be able to disrupt culture. So my guest today is Rudy Rachman, also known as Rudy Israel, if you follow him on social media. He's a speaker, a writer, and an activist who's been fighting for Jewish and Israeli rights in some of the most hostile settings in the world right now. He was born in France, he was educated in America, and he currently lives in Israel. All right. Thank you so much, Rudy. I really appreciate you being here with me today. Usually I'm always on the other end of uh, having questions asked. So this is like my favorite thing is to be able to like bug other people and, and to ask you questions that are going to make you feel very, very uncomfortable. But since I love you, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm just going to ask you regular questions. So I want to start at the beginning. So by the time you were seven years old, you had already lived in Paris um, in Israel and America, you had already experienced anti-Semitism firsthand. You experienced it. It wasn't like somebody told you about it, right? This is something that you experienced. And being physically assaulted on a bus in London, like how do these things shape your life and your decision to dedicate yourself to Jewish rights activism? How, do, how does it affect you? Even coming into that experience, I was already asking myself questions on identity, because being born in France, then moving to Israel, then moving to America, and particularly growing up in Miami, where most people don't necessarily identify as American, they identify as Haitian, Jamaican, Colombian, Cuban, uh, Brazilian, you know, Argentinian, they identify as the places maybe where their parents or grandparents were born in. So growing up as a child, I was always labeled the French kid. And when I was right. a family in France, I was the American cousin. And my father's side's Ashkenazi, my mother's side's Faladi, but my father jokes that he converted to Sephardic when he married my mom, so I was raised fully Sephardi. But going to a Jewish day school until high school, the rabbis would assume that I was Ashkenazi because my last name looked or sounded Ashkenazi. So constantly, who I am and where I'm from depended on who was asking me that question or where that question was being asked. So already before that initial action at the age of seven of being kicked off the bus, I was already asking myself these questions. What do I give as an answer when someone asks me who I am, where am I from, uh, what am I, and am I supposed to give a different answer? Or is there an answer I can give that is connected to how I see the world and what I connect to? And going through that experience, it did several things for me. Of course, it made me feel a, a level of guilt of not being prepared for that action. I did not know how to defend uh, my mom right. and myself and my younger brother. Uh, so from that moment on, I promised myself that the next time I deal with that, I'd be prepared. 
Uh, but also in that moment, it taught me who I was because I realized it didn't matter if I believed in Hashem or not. We were still getting kicked off the bus for being Jewish. It didn't matter where we were born, where my grandparents were born, which were all born in different countries. Uh, it didn't matter where I grew up in, what passport I had, where I lived in. It mattered who I was, which was a Jew, which is something much deeper than just where you're born, uh, where you grew up in, what piece of paper that we consider a passport today. It's, it's much deeper than that. And so I started going on a journey to find out what it really means to be a part of Amisal, a part of the Jewish people. And that's where uh, the activism began. Sounds like just like a cholent of identity crisis, right? <laughs> so many different things. But to go from what I would say a victimhood to actually using that as something to go out and be um, actively trying to change is already something different. So how do you get from being one who experienced it and then actually being the person that goes out and does something about it? I think there's nature and nurture there. I think, first of all, the Jewish people have a lot of generational passed down trauma. Mm -hmm. And even if they were born without necessarily facing anti-Semitism, head on firsthand, that doesn't mean that they're uh, excused from the trauma that they've inherited from their ancestors and from what we've been through. Right. Um, so there are some Jews that take the trauma and that excuse it or pretend it doesn't exist or make excuses for the problems that exist in the world. There are some Jews that even blame themselves for it. And we see that right. even today, Jews going against Israel and so on. And there are some Jews that rise above it. And that's just naturally how to deal with trauma. So um, I'm part of that community of Jews that decided to take that pain to no longer be victims and to transcend it. And I think many things played into that, such as my name. First of all, Rudy is based off of a story of uh, Jews during the Holocaust where one of the children of this family, Rudy, was actually fighting against the Nazis. And at the end of the war, came back to visit his family and couldn't find his family because they were all killed and took a bunch of orphans, children, wow. and brought them back uh, to Israel. So wow. that name, Rudy, is where my parents gave me that name. My Hebrew name is Israel. And Israel is the name that Yaakov gets when he wrestles with the angel. So wrestling right. is not a negative wrestling match. It's a positive wrestling match. It's to try to grow and to grapple and to transcend, to connect to Hashem on your own level. And not just to be content with what is, but to try to push yourself forward. So I think the name uh, that my parents chose or that they knew was supposed to be given to me definitely plays a big role in who I am. My parents as role models both are you know, fighters. They don't just stand up for, for anti-Semitism. They were activists at their time. My father was the president of the Jewish Student Union in France, uh, fighting against physical anti-Semitism that they were dealing with, where Jews were being beat up in France even back then. So I think a combination of all those things uh, made me the person that I am. And I don't think it's only one of them. I think it's a combination of those and maybe other reasons that I may not yet see today. It's amazing. Big chizik. A lot of strength there. And let's go to when you're a student already at a really good college on the West Coast, UCLA, and you decide to transfer to Columbia. Everybody knows that when it comes to hostility towards Jews in Israel, this is like the place to be, right? Which would mean that's the place for Rudy to not be. What was on your mind when you did that? At that time, it wasn't as common as it is now to know that there's a lot of anti-Semitism on college campuses, then it wasn't as much of an issue being spoken about back in 2013. And I started school at UCLA and Santa Monica College, and I realized that there was a movement uh, trying to persecute the Jewish people and trying to get everyone to the conclusion that the suffering of all minority groups is either attached to what Jews are doing to Palestinians or even the Jewish people in Israel is responsible for that suffering. And when I realized the situation that was happening, Rather than just looking at the problem, I started looking within. What is our community doing about it? 
what are the Jews doing about it? What are their Jewish leaders? What are the student groups? What are the institutions? What are the organizations? Anti-Semitism has always existed. On my father's side, it massacred my entire family that were living in Poland. On my mother's side, there was a massacre of the Jewish community in Ujda, and eventually my family had to flee from Morocco. And so this experience is not just unique to me, it's unique to almost every single Jew throughout history. So what are we doing now? Because we were raised right. with this term, never again which doesn't mean it doesn't happen because you said these magic words never again. It means you take a generational commitment to make sure it doesn't happen again. So what are we doing now? And I realized we were doing nothing at all. And it started getting back to a memory that I had of when I did the Marshall Living Trip, which is a trip I think every Jew should do, where they go to Poland and they visit Auschwitz and different camps and they learn from what happened there. Uh, they gave us packets while we were on the bus from one place to another. And in these packets, it was a combination of letters that Jewish community leaders and presidents and rabbis were sending to each other as anti-Semitism was rising in Europe. Meaning it didn't wow. go from one day Jews are a part of society in Germany and we're accepted and we're part of the army, we're doctors, lawyers in the government, to the next day we're in concentration camps and in ovens. It took a decade of evolution of anti-Semitism getting to that level. Right. So what were the community leaders saying to each other as they can feel and sense anti-Semitism rising. And the things that they were saying is, ah, don't worry about it, it'll just go away. If you do something, it'll just get worse. It can't get any worse than this. We actually have to side with Hitler because anyways, Hitler is going to get into power, so at least we'll have a relationship with him. And as I was asking these Jewish leaders and communities as to what we were doing to the rise of anti-Semitism on campuses, I got the same exact answer word for word. And right away, my mind, which is very much so based on patterns, right. I picked up the same pattern that this was the reaction to anti-Semitism that we had in the past. And not only when it came to the Holocaust, to the Inquisition, to the pogroms, to the Black Plagues, to anti-Semitism experienced in Africa, to anti-Semitism experienced in Asia, our response to anti-Semitism is always, let's put our heads down, let's get into our little shtetls, let's make friends with the power, the king and queen, the emperor, whoever's at the top, rather than empowering ourselves. And that's when I realized that the problem wasn't how bad the anti-Israel movement is or anti-Jewish movement is, but how weak our own movement was. How we allowed them to tell our own story. You wouldn't want to hear about black rights from KKK members. You wouldn't want to no. hear about women rights from people who are anti-women. So why are those no. narrating the story of the Jewish people in this or those that are anti-Israel and anti-the Jewish people? What you just said is true now, obviously, on my black side. I would say that one of the biggest things that annoy me the most is when a white person tries to tell me about the black problem. On either side, like really, like don't tell me about the black problem. And it's not fair. Everybody wants to be able to tell the Jewish narrative from their own point. Is this the reason why you went to Colombia? Was it specifically to hit this head on? Was that on your mind? It started when I was speaking to friends of mine that were either applying to colleges or applying to transfer to colleges. And I was asking them, where are you guys going? You know, where do you want to transfer to? And they said, oh, we don't want to go to that school. It's too anti-Israel. We don't want to go to that school. It's too anti-Semitic. Or parents, like, I don't want to send my daughter or my son to this school. It's too anti-Semitic. And I'm like, that's exactly where we need to be going. Right. That's where the problem is. That's where we need to actually spread light where the darkness is the biggest. Wow. Uh, so I went on Google that same year that I was transferring. I typed in number one most anti-Semitic school in North America. <laughs> Columbia University was listed number one. And that's I'm like, I'm going there. That's where I'm going. Oh my goodness, man. You, you have a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> you are, you're a serious business. 
And I think it's right because th- there's many different ways to fight and there's many different ways to have the battle, but the, ultimately you do have to fight. Now me, I would take much more of a of a religious approach, right? So like for instance, I used to live on Strauss, Rehov Strauss in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem, which is the, um, I would say pretty much the border, especially on Shabbat, is definitely the border of all the Haganas and demonstrations and everything that happens. And this is infighting. And I've seen both sides aggravate the other. I just, I see it all the time. I see a soldier walk through, you know, certain neighborhoods over there and be scorned and whatever. I see the police come in and just pull up on people and bother them on purpose. You know what I'm saying? Now, for myself, being on, you know, obviously on the more Dati side, on the Haredi side or whatever, I've always asked people, how much time did you spend actually praying for the other side? How much time do you really take a task to really cry? I'm talking about not cry like, you know, uh, I'm supposed to. I need to use a crying tone. I mean that a cry from the bottom of my heart that it really hurts me that this person doesn't doesn't know of the pleasure and the, and the joy of being connected to Hashem and Torah mitzvahs. One of the things I've been studying lately is Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah return with the Anshe Knesset Gedola, the men of the Great Assembly, all come back after the 70-year exile, right, of being subservient, being under the rule of first the Babylonians and the Persians, you know, and coming back to Eretz Yisrael and finally being able to, to, to move back and rebuild the Semikdash, the, 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 uh, the Holy Temple. And all they had to encounter, you would think, now God made a prophecy, 70 years, it's over. So you get to go back and everything's going to be hunky door. No, they go back and they're ridiculed by all the neighbors that are over there. People are coming that physically harming these people. You understand? And so they have, there's no, there's no weaponry. There's no king. There's no melt. There's nothing there. And there was nothing but just fighting and crying and praying tears and being resilient and being diligent and fighting back and saying, no matter what, we will rebuild Jerusalem. We will rebuild the walls. And you see such a, such a fight going on that didn't really take place in a physical battle. In a sense, you see, especially by Nehemiah, activism. He was fighting for the people through whatever connections he had, whether it was fighting and and going to get men from Persia to come and fight with them. So this was really activism. How important do you think that it is to restudy? I'm talking about from the biblical perspective, like even these type of stories in order to give yourself motivation or to be able to give some type of motivation to other people. I mean, definitely. I think the Torah is full of stories that are meant to teach us lessons that replay in every chapter of history. Even when you look at an act of anti-Semitism, turning a Jew on and turning him or her into an activist, you see that throughout the Torah. I mean, starting with, let's say, for example, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Moshe is his Egyptian name, and he grows up as an Egyptian. And all of a sudden, when he sees an Egyptian slave master beating a Jew, that's the act that makes him wake up. Right. And go on this journey to figure it out. And then you see with people like Herzl, a Jew as well, and an activist, what happened to Herzl, grew up in the diaspora, was very disconnected to his Jewish identity, didn't connect to it at all, went to France to report on the Dreyfus trials where a Jew was being condemned to treason just because he was a Jew in the French army. Mm. Witnesses, the crowd and the audience, chanting death to Jews, mort aux juifs, and realizing we're always going to be attacked. And then he goes on his own journey of saying, okay, well, how can I become an activist? And there's these stories that are happening throughout history that unfortunately, sometimes we have to go through an act of anti-Semitism to wake us up, to shake us. And I think there are many lessons throughout the Torah that help us see what we need to see in order to do our tikkun and do what we're supposed to do. And you're right. There are two different types of fighting. 
You can be fighting for your own ego, right. which is not necessarily the right type of fighting, or you can be fighting to transcend, right. which includes the person and others in front of you, because we're all in the creation of Hashem, right. not only Jews. Right. And we're all one. This entire world and universe is one. So we're one body and all the nations are different organs. All the individuals are different cells. And at the end of the day, if you're attacking your other organs, you're attacking the body. So we need to be able to transcend the fights that we're in and not only focus on the small vision of what's in front of us and the wars that are happening internally in our minds. So real. All right, so getting deep for a minute here. So I heard you before, you know, you spoke about Jewish identity and use a very interesting term. Being Jewish, you said, isn't necessarily about religion. It's about having a portable suitcase, a big bag that contains so many different identity uh, elements and which you just carry around with you wherever you go. As a Jewish people, when you ask Jews that are knowledgeable on Jewish identity and history, what is the name of our nation? They won't say Jews. They'll say Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel. In the Torah, there's no mention of Jews as a collective. The only person that's mentioned as a Jew is actually Mordechai, and that's for a different reason. But we're also, we're either called Amisrael, B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, or Ivrim. So to now be called Jews is just another term, a synonym for the same collective. And so mm-hmm. let's break down first what the word religion means. In English, it's an English word or a Latin word or a French word. It's not a Hebrew word. It means the belief system in a God, deity, book, or prophet. And it makes sense because if you apply it to all religions, Christianity, if you accept Jesus, you're a Christian. You reject Jesus, you're not a Christian. Islam, you accept Muhammad and the Quran, you become a Muslim. You reject Muhammad and the Quran, you're not a Muslim. In Buddhism, same. So you have a belief system that wanders and crosses over borders, but Judaism is not the same. It's not a belief system that crossed over those borders. It's a physical people that crossed over those borders. And yes, there is an ability for people to join the nation the same way that Native Americans have a process in which one can join their nation. But it's not just accepting the belief system. It's going through a deep process of actually their soul that is already a part of that nation going through the process of adopting that history, adopting that identity, the experiences, the suffering that comes along with being a Jew. Because you went through an experience growing up as a black man, but now you're going through the experiences of being a black and Jewish man. And now you know what it's like to suffer as a Jewish man because now you've come back to your own people. And so you're accepting also the suffering that comes along with being a part of those people and most importantly, the purpose of that people. And that is the transition to becoming part of a nation slash civilization, which is why I don't think that Judaism is actually a religion because a religion is only a belief system. And yes, Hashem in our spirituality and our Torah is a fundamental part of who the Jewish people are, but it's not only what we are. It's way more than that. That's the soul, but there's also the body. And you need both in order for the vessel to actually do something in this world. What are we supposed to do now that we've reunited the soul, the body, the people, the land, and we're back into our vehicle, back into the vessel of our people, which is the land of Israel? What direction are we driving that car? And I think that's the question of what we're asking for. But when we go back to Judaism, what is it really? It's it's an ism is a man-made social structure. Feminism, capitalism, Zionism, you know, good or bad, these are all structures made by mankind or humankind. And so Judaism is the man-made or human-made social structure leaving from Judea, creating a suitcase of our own identity, way of life, culture, traditions, religion, everything inside, pack them as articles within the suitcase, pass it down generation to generation, adol vadol, with the aspiration of Shana Babirushalayim. One day we will come back home to Jerusalem, revive this civilization, and actually fulfill what we were supposed to fulfill the first two times that we were in the civilization. Right. Can you be a Jew without God? God is there no matter what. 
It's just you might be oblivious to the understanding that Hashem is there. And you can be a Jew that is disconnected from that awareness, the same way a one-year-old may be disconnected or maybe even more connected than we are uh, to that awareness. And that still is a Jew. That just means that their soul has an, a, a larger tikkun to fix on their end in order to get there. But Hashem is always there regardless of if they believe in it or not. Right, right. Okay, so that's a very, very good answer. There is so much cultural Judaism. You know, I was, I think I was like playing a, a concert in Austin and I remember like I was looking up kosher food everywhere and then it's the first time ever I seen something that said kosher style and I was really lost. It's, the whole thing became a sugiya for me. I was really in-depthly trying to figure out what is kosher style, you know? Is it kosher? Is it not kosher? I need to know, Is it, you know? It made me think, I wish I would have been able to have that opportunity to be able to ask the other question. Can you have God without a Jew? That's really big. I'm going to tell you why. Because as I was on my journey and I was going through, I want to get to know God brand new. I want to get to know him brand new. And you cannot go through the Bible itself and not see how many times that Hashem, even if God says a rebuke to the Jewish nation, he's always wrapping it with words of love and redemption and what's going to be in the future and restoration. Not only that, I came to another discovery that the whole entire integrity of God and whose existence was, was based on there being a Jewish people, right? Now, this sounds like heresy because God can exist whether there is or no Jewish people. But the the way that he put he stamps his card, like he gives us a business card, the Jewish business card that he that God gives to the Jewish people is I'm God and I took you out of Egypt. Right? This is how we're supposed to know and be able to identify him. The way that the nations identify him is by there being Jews. That there has to be Jews in order for that final dance to take place. You cannot find a place inside the prophets where God throws away the Jewish people. The whole thing is written and based on there being a Jewish people self by self. At the end, there has to be a Jewish nation at the end. There has to be a physical place. There has to be a physical people. Then There will be a physical king, God willing, very soon. But this is God's business card to the rest of the world. And this is how we are to be able to know his existence. And I always tell people, if you don't believe that, ask the nations. Why do you think that the Christian world is so um, into helping the Jewish people move back to Israel? Because they know that that connection between God and the Jewish people, that marriage has to take place before even all of their prophecies. If you don't believe that, Islamic hadiths, even though they're on the other side, talks about at the end of the day, they're being Jews, right? And who could predict that such a thing could happen before even uh, Hitler, Yamak or all these other nations and other peoples that we talked about, all the pogroms. And, and the Inquisition, it shouldn't be. But the fact that there is a something the Jewish people already is something very, very supernatural. The whole thing doesn't make sense unless there's a God. So I say on the opposite, not the fact that you cannot, can you not only be a Jew without God, you can't have a God without the Jew because the Jew is the business card that there's a God in the world. Anyway, so you you speak so eloquently about like Zionists being a movement of uh, uh, decolonization of the Jewish people miraculously also returning to the land, which you and I both we could share on that all day long because it's an argument that is so strongly supported by so much evidence, right? Everybody knows it. There's archaeology. Why do you think? 
that so many people have a hard time accepting it. It kind of ties in as to why is there's this rejection of the Jewish people in the first place, whether it's our connection to land, our history, our identity, our purpose. I think that a lot of people usually say, well, there's jealousy. And although that can play a part, uh, I don't think the Jews are particularly successful just because we're born Jewish. Right. I think it has a lot to do with our culture. Uh, if you go back 200, 300 years ago, most people were not articulate, did not know how to read and write, but all Jews knew how to read and write because we had to study the Torah. We had to do our bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. And not only that, we had this rabbi's opinion and that rabbi's opinion. So developing our critical thinking. Uh, we also helped one another. We also pushed usually in the family structure to encourage the children to succeed as much as they can. So a lot of those values exist in other cultures as well, but it's very prominent within Jewish culture. And that culture has allowed us to be able to transcend and overcome problems that we face. So yes, we succeed. And yes, there's jealousy, but there are other communities that also succeed. And there isn't as much jealousy to those communities as there is to ours. So I don't think that's enough of an answer. Uh, then usually people say, well, um, there's this dual loyalty that Jews are part of this group, this outside group. And they're not really part of our group, whether in America, in Germany, in Morocco, wherever it is. So they're kind of outsiders. And yeah, that is true that Jews are a nation. We are have our own homeland. That doesn't mean we can't live amongst other nations and help empower them and respect society. It's actually a part of our culture to do so. But there are other also nations that are existing amongst other nations, and they're not treated the same way as we are. So that's also not enough. You ever heard of a Chinatown? Almost everywhere you go, there's a Chinatown. And a Koreatown and a... A little right. Haiti and a Jamaica, Haiti, right. you know, town right. and all these different things. And there is also, you know, right now, actually, there's a peak of, of, of Asian hate crime right now going on in America. But you have many communities that have their own identity, their own connection, and even the connection back to homeland. And they don't even experience close to the amount of anti-Semitism and hate crimes that Jews experience. In New York City, the Jewish population is 9%. Over 60% of hate crimes are against Jews. That just doesn't make any sense with the amounts that we actually make up. So what is the reason that every single extreme group, from the extreme communist to the extreme capitalist, extreme left, extreme right, black supremacist, white supremacist, any group on the far ends, all agree on one thing, that the Jew is the problem, and that the Jew is the target, and that the Jew has to be, has to be attacked. Any nation throughout history, throughout time. Why is that? And the reason that I came up with is if you look at what the purpose of the Jewish people is, what we chose on Hal Sinai, we said we accept this Torah amongst all nations. We accept it. We accept this purpose. It's not just the mitzvot. The mitzvot is for us, for us to be able to be spiritually awake, for our antennas to open up, for us to be able to, to fulfill our purpose. But what is that purpose? It talks about tikkun olam and olagwim, to fix and heal the world right. and to empower other nations, not to lead other nations but to give other nations the ability for them to fulfill their own potential. Right. So the way I see it is that the world is one body and each nation is a different organ or can play several organs. You can be half of an organ. You can be a third of this one, half of that one. You can change whatever you want. Each nation can choose what purpose it is to fulfill. Right. The Jewish people chose, and another nation can choose this too. We chose to be the immune system. Right. We chose to <laughs> heal the body. And to allow the other organs to fulfill their purpose. And when the immune system fails the body, it doesn't mean we created the diseases in the body, but it's right. our responsibility to heal and to solve those problems. And when we fail to heal those problems, the other organs are all turning to the immune system subconsciously and blaming right. us for the problems. And so I think the real transcending of anti-Semitism is for us to know who we are, be where we're supposed to be, and actually fulfill our purpose in this world in order to get to that 
finale of the body be, being healed, which is what we see and understand as Mashiach. Right. And I, you know what? I would even second that, you know, as long as there is a Jewish people, then there is a God in the world. There's a God presence, right? I like the immune system thing also. It's very, very huge. So what's one thing that really surprised you since you started doing this work? Like what are the, what is like most unexpected thing that happened to you? And do you have any more like new ideas rising and that are inspiring you? Uh, I guess my biggest surprise, or I would say maybe my frustration early on was the fact that it was a lot harder to wake up Jews on our side and that so many people in the establishment were fighting against uh, waking up and standing up. So for example, today in the Jewish world, it's pretty acceptable to call Jews indigenous because we are the original people. And you brought up the Canaanites earlier and the Canaanites were not even a nation. They were a collective of different peoples because Canaan was a region. It was like a regional term. Right. It wasn't a, a nation in itself. But even the Canaanites, if, if we go back from the Torah, because anyone bringing up the Canaanites is using the Torah as a source. There's only one mention of Canaanites in hieroglyphics written in Egypt. It doesn't say where they were. It doesn't say right. who they were. It just mentions them. So anyone even referring to the fact that there were Canaanites in Eretz Israel is using the Torah as a source. And in the source, the Canaanites, just like the Israelites are the descendants of Israel, the Canaanites are the descendants of Canaan, which is actually one of the descendants of Ham, which comes from Africa. So even them are not the original people. The original people are the Ivrim, the descendants of Ever, which is a descendant straight from Shem. And right. he, Abraham is an Ivri. So he's a descendant of the Ivrim. So even with, uh, you know, Abraham going into the land, it wasn't his first time. It was actually himself going back into his homeland. So right. the thing is that, like, people need to understand that Jews are the indigenous people. And this was something early on when I started to talk about this back in 2013, 2014, that even the Jewish community was rejecting. And I found it, you know, very frustrating that, you know, it's one thing that I have to fight a battle with. 99.9% of the world to get them to understand us with all these different factions and groups against us. I mean, it's another surprising thing when your own people are fighting you for just saying the truth and trying to, to lift them up. So that's something that I found frustrating, but I'm uh, always very optimistic. I also understand why people get to those conclusions, why they're so afraid of standing up given the perspective and, you know, the experiences that we've been through historically. Um, but I see a younger generation starting to stand up uh, starting to rise, starting to educate themselves, empower themselves. So I have a lot of, um, when I look at the future, I have a lot of optimism in mind. Um, something that really has recently taken a lot of my time on a project that I've been doing. It started when I was at Columbia. I was at the Chabad uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Bloom. And there was a woman who came uh, to offer a gift to the rabbi. And she brought him this kippah that she found in Africa. And asked her, you know, what's the story? And she's like, oh, I just went to Africa on my honeymoon trip and we found a community of Jews in Uganda. And this is their pictures. They're living here in the middle of nowhere and they're wearing tefillin and practicing Torah and having Brit Milah and everything else. And it was like, ma, how do I not know that these Jews exist? How is it that I joined the army at 17, served as a combat soldier, uh, you know, went to, to UCLA, then transferred to Columbia specifically to fight for the Jewish people. I'm so passionate about Jewish identity and history, and I'm not even aware that there are Jews living in the continent over there, you know, even actually closer than Israel from where I was. And that started this whole process and journey of I have to research, I have to find out, I have to reconnect. The feeling that I had is like, you know, trying to reconnect to, to brothers and sisters that were lost to me. 
Imagine you uh, at a certain age, me, I'm 27 right now. Imagine 27, I find out that I had a brother or sister my whole life that I didn't know about. It's like, first of all, what? You know, mind blown. Second of all, how can I make up on that lost time and that disconnect and actually build that relationship? So I've been going for the past, I mean, since 2018. So over three years of educating myself on the Lemba, the Ibos, the Jews the, in the Abba Yudaya, the Jews in Tanzania, the Jews in Madagascar, the Jews in Gabon and in Cote d'Ivoire and in Mozambique and in all these different places in Africa. Um, and for a long time, I've been wanting to go there to create content to bring them up, to bring them to the Jewish consciousness, for us to be aware of our brothers and sisters that are there. Um, and, you know, some of them converted to Judaism, like the Abba Yudaya, genuinely converted to Judaism, have been massacred for being Jews by Idi Amin and still are holding strong. Um, and some of them actually have genetic connections, like they found the Kohen DNA proof that they have the Kohen gene amongst the Lemba, amongst the Buba tribe over there. So it's a fact that a lot of them actually physically descend from Amisad, and even if they don't physically descend, in our own culture, let's not become Western, in our own culture, Semitic culture, we believe that the Jew can be born in a non-Jewish body, even a collective of Jews can be born in a non-Jewish collective and find their way to actually their true nation. And so we have that going on, not only in Africa, in Asia and in South America, you know, with a lot of crypto Jews coming out of Spain and Portugal that are still there. You go to certain mountains uh, in places in Central and South America, and they're speaking Ladino words, or there's a community uh, in Puerto Rico that I just found out not too long ago, um, that they are, there's a lot of crime in that community. And the reason that they have a lot of crime, I was speaking to someone from there, is that they're excusing it because they were raised on stories that they came from Spanish and Portuguese prisons and that their ancestors basically were criminals, so it justifies their actions. And if you look up actually where those prisons were, they weren't criminals, they were Jews. They were prisons to put Jews in prison for practicing their Judaism. And all their ancestors are actually Jews and not criminals at all. And so there's all these fascinating stories. Um, and so for a long time, I've been wanting to do a project and We've already launched our project in two months. Bezat Hashem will be going to Africa to document these stories. Season one documentary series is going to be on their stories. Let me just make sure I get a seat on that flight. Yeah, if you want to come, come come through. Well, you should have tremendous blessing in every single thing that you're doing. And just know you got a lot of support from over here. And uh, I appreciate you coming on and talking with me about all this. I really do, really do. Should only go from strength to strength. Thank you for doing this. my thoughts with this discussion with Rudy was, you know, it takes a lot, and I mentioned this, but it takes a lot for a person to be on one side of something. Basically, being the person who is on the other side of being talked down to or talked bad about from uh, friends or from people that are not peers, whether you're in school or whatever, to actually go out and turn around and be the person who is leading and pushing in your own way advocacy for your people and to be able to stand up against all odds and to go to a place where you know that you're going to go fight an uphill battle, but to be so sure of yourself and to be so real about your mission that you're willing to go that extra mile and to really put it all out there and put yourself out there and advocate for what you believe is true. A lot of people don't have that courage. So I really, really take my hat off to Rudy. Had an amazing time talking to him. He's an a, a amazing person. And like I said, 
I'm definitely in every way trying to be involved in, in, in his uh, We Were Never Lost program. So I am uh, telling everybody, if you can help out with that, assist with that, I think it's going to be big, not only for the communities that are involved, but also for the community as a whole. Um, so as I said before, I would like to end the show always with a song. And uh, the song may or may not reflect really the way that I felt when I had that conversation. I think in this case, it's very, very appropriate. I have a song called Willing to Lose, um, which really highlights my own personal challenges that I had on my way into Judaism. And the, and the one thing I would say that really made me stand before myself, really, before I stood before God, stand before myself and ask myself, who are you and what are you willing to lose in order to live this life? And uh, so I want to share that song with all of you. Until next time, be strong and only go from strength to strength. Thank you so much for listening to The Deal with me, Nisim Black. It's a production of the Joshua Network. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Gilad Brownstein. Please follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at The Deal with NB. And subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast content. Please share this with your friends so that they can get this raw and riveting stuff from me, yours truly, God's man. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.